Luke chapter 10 in the Word of God. Luke chapter 10. As you're turning, I'd like to ask all the men and the ladies that invited a guest and they came for them. If you are a man or a lady and you invited a guest and they've come for you, your hand. Okay, very good. All right, keep your hands raised. You know what? If you invited a guest, you see me at the back table. That's a blessing. Those of you that are our guests and, and made this possible, thank you. Let's give these guests a round of applause. Wonderful. All the children four years old up through third grade may be dismissed. All the children four years of age up through third grade. You can follow Mr. Timothy and Miss Amber back for children's Bible time. Luke chapter 10 is where your Bibles are at. I draw your attention to what the Bible says in verse number 25. Luke chapter 10 and verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy strength, and with all thy mind, and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Now it is in this context, and in answer to this question, that Jesus is going to give one of the most famous stories of the Bible. The story of the Good Samaritan. And I want to draw from this story a truth that I believe will be a help to every Christian in this place and every unbeliever who is listening to the sound of my voice. Tonight, for a few moments, I want to preach to you on the subject, the crying sin of the church. The crying sin and the crying shame of the church. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, speak to our hearts. Bind Satan far from this place. May he have no influence and no power whatsoever in our thinking. Those that have been bound by him and confused by him for such a long time, I pray that you would set the captives free tonight. Those that are unsaved, I pray that you'd save them. And Lord, do a mighty work, we ask, for your glory and honor. I pray that Jesus would be magnified and that he would be lifted up. And Holy Spirit, that you would superintend over our hearts. Help us right now before the service and the message even starts to make up our mind that we're going to surrender to you. And whatever you speak to us about, we'll obey. We'll thank you in Jesus' precious and wonderful name. Amen. I was thinking today about my mom and dad and how often my mom and dad, as I was growing up, would would uh, try to get my attention or maybe something would really get their attention. And and growing up, I remember sometimes things would really bother them and they'd say something like this. Oh, what a crying shame. 
Did you have parents like that? Uh, may, that's a phrase that's maybe a little bit of an idiom and it's not used very much these days. But boy, when my parents really were uh, bothered or really upset by something, they'd say, oh, what a crying shame. For instance, my dad would say something like that if food was wasted. Am I the only dad that had uh, the only one that had a dad that believed it was a sin to waste food? Yeah, it, yeah, it, it was a it was a crying shame to waste food in our house. It was a crying shame. And uh, and so that that kind of was the way it was. And, you know, growing up that with that, my I did think it's wrong to waste food, you know, wrong to to if, if it's three days expired, you still eat it. You just work it past the gag reflex and you just eat it. I mean, it's a crying shame to waste food, you know, and uh, my wife one day was throwing some food away. And I said, well, what what are you doing? She said, it's expired. And I bowed up and I said, my parents were raised in the depression. And she said, mine weren't. <laughs> so, so I'm thankful that my my wife has a little bit of a different perspective. It it makes uh, the meals even more scrumptious. But just the same, uh, it was a crying shame to waste food. Uh, sometimes it'd be a crying shame when my parents noted that somebody had had really, really gone away from their moorings and kicked out of the trenches of their marriage vows. And and they would they would often note what a crying shame that was. I knew it was a bad thing when my dad would gasp and my mom would bite her bottom lip when dad went oh, and mom went. Oh, I knew it was bad. It was just terrible, awful bad. And usually they would follow up with saying something like this. What a crying shame. It was a crying shame. Sometimes my mom would come into our rooms when it wasn't when it, they weren't clean and you could hardly make your you couldn't even see the floor. And they'd say, this is a crying shame. I, I don't know. Maybe I was unique and only had parents like this, but maybe you had parents like this as well. But, you know, tonight I want to preach to you on the crying shame and the crying sin of the church. You know what the crying shame of the church is, ladies and gentlemen? It's the, that there's too little crying. The crying shame of the church is that there's not enough crying. Not enough tears. Not enough brokenness. Not enough compassion. Not enough empathy. I believe that's one of the crying shames of the church and we're going to see it here in Luke chapter 10 tonight. In Luke chapter 10, this man comes, this lawyer, and he came tempting him. You know, lawyers were offering doing that. Sounds like lawyers haven't changed very much. But lawyers were tempting him. The lawyers tried to tempt him. The Sadducees tried to tempt him. The religious Pharisees tried to tempt him. They tried to snare him. They'd ask questions not so that they could learn, but so that they could capture Jesus in his words. And Jesus was a master teacher. Jesus would often answer their questions with a question. Sometimes he would answer their questions with a story like he's going to do now. And he used both in this particular passage. Sometimes he would answer their question uh, only on a condition if they answered his question. And if they didn't answer his question, then he wouldn't answer their question. Jesus didn't fall for their traps. And he was a master teacher. And here this lawyer comes tempting and says, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? As if eternal life is something you inherit. You don't get eternal life because of your pedigree. And you don't get eternal life because of what you do. Now, there are a lot of religions that teach that. And obviously, this lawyer was influenced by one of those religions. But that's not how you get eternal life, by inheriting it and by doing something. But the scripture says in verse number 26, he said unto him, what is written in the law? How readest thou? 
And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right. This do and thou shalt live. Now, that seems strange because that seems the antithesis to every other time Jesus was teaching on eternal life. For instance, in John chapter 14, in verse number six, he said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No man cometh unto the father, but by me. He said in John chapter six and verse thirty five, he said, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. He said in John five twenty four, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death into life. You see, he's making the condition coming to him. He's making the condition believing on him. And so here he says, if you'll do these things, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength, love your neighbor as yourself, this do and you shall live. That's opposite of what he's taught elsewhere. What's Jesus teaching? Uh, Jesus said in John three sixteen that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He tells us in John chapter 10 by me, I am the door by me. If any man enter in, he shall go in and out and find pasture. He tells us in John chapter number four, I am the water or the fountain of life. Who's, he says, if thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him and he would have given thee living water. You see, he's making the condition for salvation, asking, coming, believing, entering. He says in the scripture, in the book of Acts, chapter 16, when someone asks, what must I do to be saved? The answer is clear. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. You see, this decision of receiving the gospel is through repentance and faith, changing your mind about God, about your sin, about your destiny, about Jesus and believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, turning away from whatever you've trusted in and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. But here he says, this do and thou shalt live. What's he doing? Well, he's trying to get this lawyer to admit that he's a guilty sinner. And my friend, you cannot get to heaven until you're willing to admit that you're a guilty sinner. In Romans chapter 3, verse 19, the Bible says that the law was given that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. My friend, if you've never acknowledged your guilt before a holy God, you're not going to heaven. You say, well, I've confessed to a priest. That's not what salvation is. You say, well, I've confessed to a bishop. That's not what salvation is. Well, you say, I've joined up on a religious organization. That's not what salvation is. You say, well, I've tried to give to charity when I have an opportunity. That's not what salvation is. So why does Jesus say here, this do and thou shalt live? Because he's trying to get this man to acknowledge his sin. It's the same idea when Jesus in Matthew is speaking to the, the, the young man that comes to him and says, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The first thing Jesus said is, why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, and that is God. Is Jesus not God? Well, of course he is. Well, what would he say that for? Because he's trying to get this man to realize that there's none good, including him, this man speaking. Again, he comes, he says, he says, keep the commandments. Wait a second. Jesus is saying, keep the commandments. Yes. You know why? Not because he's trying to get this man to see that if you keep the commandments, you'll have eternal life. But he's trying to get this man to see that the commandments are God's measuring stick. And this is how far short this man and all men, women, boys and girls have fallen short of keeping the Ten Commandments. He says, well, I've kept those from my youth up. Oh, so Jesus said, then go and sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. And the Bible says the man went away sorrowing. 
Well, Jesus hit on his on the nerve. The most tender nerve in a man's life is the nerve that runs from his heart to his pocketbook. (laughs) And he said, oh, no, I can't do that. What was Jesus showing? Jesus was showing that this man did have some sin in his life. It was the sin of idolatry and covetousness. And he worshipped his money. And his money was keeping him from serving God and from from being saved. He worshipped his money. And he can't worship money and God at the same time. You see? So Jesus here in the same vein is saying the same thing. Because notice what the scripture says in verse 29. It says, but he, willing to justify himself, said unto Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now listen carefully, ladies and gentlemen. This man was not asking questions so that he could learn and so that Jesus could be his teacher. He was asking questions So that he could snare Jesus. So that he could trap Jesus and tempt him. And then the scripture says that he was willing to justify himself. I meet a lot of people willing to justify themselves. Don't you? In fact, you don't have to go far to meet someone who's willing to justify themselves. All you have to do is look in the mirror. Isn't that right? We always want to portray ourselves in a better light than we are. We always want to portray ourselves in a good light, not a bad light. That's why when we go out, we put some perfume on so, you know, we don't smell like a corpse. When we go out, we put some breath mints in so we, we, we actually uh, can, can, can draw people to us. And by the way, down south, I learned this when I moved from the north to the south, that when someone offers you a mint, it's a suggestion. Never turn a mint away. Now, somebody up north wouldn't do that. A Yankee wouldn't do that. They'd just say, your breath stinks. But now, not not down south. Down south, they have a little more decorum and a little bit more kindness. And so when they offer you a mint, it's a suggestion. So so why do we do that? We go out because we we go out and we 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 put a mint in our mouth because we want to put our best foot forward. We don't want to appear worse than we are. Now, that's all fine and good. And that's nothing wrong with that. In fact, God bless all the mints and all the perfume and cologne in the world. But we're talking here about sin. And most of the time we like to justify ourselves. Have you ever, have you ever go home tonight and look at the news? Look at the news and listen and evaluate the percentage of the news that is all about the badness of the other guy. The Democrats are blaming the Republicans. The Republicans are blaming the Democrats. This one is blaming that one. The one that's out of the White House is blaming the one that's in the White House. The one that's in the White House is blaming everybody else. Everybody's blaming everybody. Everybody's blaming this person. Nobody is ever looking up and taking responsibility. And when someone does get caught, they make some lame apology like, I'm sorry that you felt that way. (laughs) I mean, am I the only one that sees that? Well, watch. Oh, we blame this country over there and we blame that country over there. We blame these people with this skin color and these people with this skin color. We blame these people that are making a certain amount of money and these people that are not making. We blame everybody's blaming everybody. Everybody's pointing out the badness of everybody else. Why? Because we're just like this lawyer. We want to justify ourselves. We don't want to look in the mirror. Well, I'm here to tell you, I hate to disrupt your world, but God's word is the mirror. It's the perfect law of liberty. And God wants us to look in the mirror the proper way. Someday I'm going to preach a message on how to look in the mirror. And I'm going to go to the dollar store and buy mirrors for everybody. Do you know what I've seen sometimes? This is what I've seen sometimes. uh, Brother Mark, I've seen sometimes people come to church and they look in the mirror like this. 
They're wanting them, their wife or their husband to really get it. Give it to him, preacher. Give it to him. Oh, I'll tell you, no, nobody needs that more than my husband. Nobody needs that more than my kids. We try to shine the mirror in everybody else's eye, kind of like I did with the glare of my watch crystal on my dad's eyes when he was driving growing up. I guess I had a death wish. But, but wait, that, isn't that what we do? Watch now. We do this with the mirror. I hope they get it. I hope you get it. I hope they get it. That's the wrong way to look in the mirror. All the while, we've got shaving cream coming down here because we didn't look in the mirror. All the while, our hair is all messed up and disheveled because we didn't look in the mirror. Now, let's look in the mirror tonight of God's Word. God's Word didn't give us this so that we could say, oh, those rotten lawyers. God's Word isn't here. This passage isn't here so that we can look and say, oh, those rotten people. And God gives us four individuals in the following story that are going to show us our need for tears. And I believe this to the depths of my soul. One reason why many people in this world are still on their way to hell is because those who are no longer on their way to hell have turned the spigot off. And stop weeping. And stop truly crying. And more importantly, stop truly caring. Look at what the scripture says. Jesus said in verse number 30, and Jesus answering, said, a certain rich, a certain man went down to Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, which stripped him of his raiment and wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. The first person I want you to meet tonight is a broken man. This man right here was leaving from Jerusalem down to Jericho. The reason they say down is because anywhere out of Jericho is down. It's in descent. That's the idea. So he's leaving Jerusalem going down to Jericho and he falls among thieves. Maybe they lured him in. Maybe they were on the side with a, a sandwich shop or maybe they had a little uh, a little little fruit stand on the side and they lured him in. Maybe they maybe they had a broken down wagon and and, and, a, and a broken down wheel and they made like they were really hard up and they lured him in. We don't know exactly the circumstances, but the scripture says he fell among thieves and they pummeled him and they beat him. The scripture says that they stripped him of his raiment. That means they 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 stripped him. He was naked. They wounded him. That means they beat him and they departed. They abandoned him, leaving him half dead. So here's a man who is stripped Wounded, abandoned, and half dead. He's the broken man. And this man is a good picture of unsaved humanity. It's a good picture of me before I was saved. A good picture of you before you were saved. Lost, broken, abandoned, beaten, wounded, stripped, left for dead. That's what the scripture describes. And do you know you don't have to look very far to find folks like this? Just today, as I was parking before church, my truck, I came across and I, I noticed a man across just walking the sidewalk. And, and, you know, the Lord really worked in my heart to go talk to him. And, and, and I did. And I gave him a gospel track. And he obviously had the marks of sin all over him. And he, he wasn't quite sure he was going to take it. And he wasn't quite sure he wanted to. And I just offered it to him and asked him to, to, to read this gospel track. And, and he did. And I'm grateful for that. But I'll tell you, there's people all around and not very far away who are just like this man, broken, broken. I want us to lift up our eyes tonight and see them. If you're here tonight and you're not saved, I want you to see them. I want you to see that you are that man. 
broken. Some people are broken by relationships that have gone bad. And they, they thought that they had the trust of someone. And they thought that they could trust them. But in fact, they they're, were brought into someone's trust and they were broken. And their relationship is broken and marred. And they feel wounded and abandoned and, and stripped and vulnerable and, and left half dead. And they have to pick up the pieces of their life and somehow muddle through. That's the unsaved way. Just muddle through somehow. Some people are broken by riches and they go after riches with a passion and they think that that's where life satisfaction is at. And they find with their fancy cars and they find with their rich houses and they find with their expensive clothing and they find with their high paying jobs that it's just an empty shell at the end. Some people are broken by by religion. And they're brought into religion and they're beaten and wounded and left half dead. And their trust has been betrayed and they, they've been uh, dis, disenfranchised, if you will. And, and they, they, they've seen the inside of religion and the ugly side of religion. By the way, Jesus speaks of religion a few times. And he gives very specific qualities on what pure religion is, is in the Bible. Pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this. To visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. That means reaching out to those that are, that, that are helpless and weak and vulnerable. And to keep himself unspotted from the world. That's God's design for religion. Watch that now. Do you know what most religions in the world do? They abandon that. And they abandon the Bible. And they abandon Jesus. There may have been a time when some religions looked to Jesus and some denominations looked to Jesus, but they had long ago walked away from Jesus as the only Savior of the world. You see, watch this. Religion that does not have the Bible as the only foundation and Jesus as the only Savior is a fraud. And religion that does not have the Bible as its only foundation in Jesus as the only Savior is about two things. Listen carefully. Money and control. That's it. That's it. Money and control. They want your money and they want your control. And they're not any different than some shrewd businessman that wants to put his hand in your pocket and take your money and somehow control your life and manipulate you. That's not Bible religion. That's not what Jesus was about. In fact, Jesus stood against the religion of his day. You understand that? And so now in Luke chapter number six or Luke chapter number 10, he's speaking about a broken man. Some people are broken by religion, some by riches, some by relationships. Some people are broken in other ways. Some people are actually broken by 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 the refuse of this world and by the the sin and rebellion of this world. Drugs and alcohol have left people broken. We went into a Starbucks just a couple days ago, downtown D.C., and there was a man who was talking, uh, talking mindlessly all, all the while we were there. When we walked in, he was just talking, sitting there, probably a homeless man, probably wrecked and ruined by sin. His mind was obviously very troubled and very altered. I went up and struck up a conversation with him. I gave him a gospel track. I, I tried to reason with him just, just a little bit, just to be friendly and talk to him just a little bit. He was talking about this, that, and the other thing, and not a whole lot of it made sense. Some people are broken by the rebellion of this world. I'll tell you, drugs will break you down, and they'll ruin your life, and they'll fry your brain, and they'll strip you and leave you wounded, half dead, naked, and vulnerable. Alcohol will do the same. There are many many who justify alcohol. Uh, Abraham Lincoln said, alcohol has many defenders, but no defense. And the truth of the matter is, if you've got any in your home, you ought to go home tonight and pour it in the one place it belongs. 
belongs straight down the toilet because it is ruined and wrecked and marred and scarred people's homes. It is the popular drug. It is the liquid drug. It is the acceptable drug today. And there is far and away more problems caused by alcohol than by any single drug or by all the drugs combined. And it has been that way for the last 100 years in this country, wrecking and ruining and marring and destroying people's lives and leaving women homeless and leaving uh, women to fend for their families all by themselves and wandering and squandering men's incomes and, and leaving children as orphans. What a wreck and ruin and, and what, a, what a wound it leaves. What a wound it leaves. Hey, some people have been wounded and stripped and left for dead by immorality and fornication. Someone said America's favorite pastime is no longer baseball, it's fornication. And that's true. And whether you realize it or not, there is an entire generation growing up that thinks that cheap and casual sex is just like going to McDonald's and getting a milkshake. And they don't know any different. And they've been told by the CDC and by the World Health Organization, which are organizations that do not have themselves rooted in truth. They've been told that all you need is a little bit of protection. And it's wicked as the devil. And while the CDC says that out of one side of the mouth, they're scrambling out of the other side of their mouth trying to figure out how to solve all the new sexually transmitted diseases that they can't solve. I've got a solution for the CDC. It says Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4, marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. The solution for all of the sexually transmitted diseases is to be faithful inside the boundaries that God has set. Marriage, that's the boundary. Anything, anything outside of that boundary is open and under the unmitigated judgment of a thrice holy God. Some people have been wounded and left for dead. I wonder who here tonight is this broken man. Stripped. Made vulnerable, wounded. Abandoned and left half dead. Notice verse 31. And, and by chance, there came down a certain priest that way. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. I want you to notice, number two, there was a busy man. This man was a priest. Not a priest like we would know it today, but a priest in the Jewish system. So he was a priest and that he would he would be involved in 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 burning incense uh, in the in the tabernacle or the temple, if you will, depending on when Jesus uh, was drawing this story from. He was be involved in making sure that there was showbread on the table. He would be involved and responsible to make sure that the menorah was lit. He would make sure that everything was right inside the holy place. He had some holy and solemn responsibilities. The priest had other responsibilities to care and tend to the Levites and make sure that whatever they needed to accomplish their job was supplied to make sure that everything was done properly in the priesthood and everything was done properly in the temple or the tabernacle. And this priest came along. I wonder, I wonder what this broken man thought when he heard footsteps. I wonder if he was beaten and thrown off the side of the road and he looked up and maybe he heard footsteps and he had enough consciousness to hear the footsteps and he heard them getting closer and closer. And as they came slower and slower, maybe the priest saw that there was blood on the trail. 
Maybe the priest saw that there was some frayed and pieces of garment that were strewn across the trail. Maybe he noticed that there was a, a sign of a scuffle. And the scripture says that the priest came and saw it. Notice verse number 31. He came that way and when he saw him. So was he enough to notice? He saw him. Maybe at that moment, all the broken man could do was look through squinted, swollen eyes and see the footprint, see the feet of this priest and see the tassels hanging down that would show him to be a priest and look up and see his priestly robes and his phylacteries and, and maybe all he could do through parched, swollen lips and through swollen eyes was say, Maybe he made eye contact. And when he made eye contact, he saw the priest. Saw him. But for one reason or another, this priest was too busy. Maybe he thought, I've got an appointment in just 30 minutes and there's no way that I can make that appointment. And I've got things to do between here and there. And there's no way that I can accomplish all those things if I stop. This is too much for me. I'm too busy for this. I don't have time to go along with this. I've got too many things on my schedule. I think sometimes we've made our schedule our gods. We're so busy. I have one of my former pastors said, it's not that we're bad people. It's just that we're too busy. And, you know, maybe that's that's our problem. Maybe we've made our schedules the holy grail. Maybe we've made our schedules the number one priority. Years ago, Evangelist Curtis Hudson, who was the editor of the Sword of the Lord and just become the editor of the Sword of the Lord, was preaching in an area-wide meeting out in Wichita, Kansas. Several churches were involved, Bible-preaching churches. They had rented an auditorium. They were having people saved. And, of course, Curtis Hudson was a mighty preacher of the gospel and greatly used of God. And as he was preaching, there was, there was something very supernatural and remarkable happening. People were turning to God in droves, and they had a meeting with all the pastors. They got together with the pastors and he said, this is what Curtis Hudson said, told to me by one of the sponsoring and cooperating pastors. He said, gentlemen, he said, I have never seen God work like this. Now, Curtis Hudson, for a while, pastored a church in the shadow of Atlanta, Georgia, and they were seeing 15 to 20 people baptized, saved and baptized almost every week and every Sunday. They were growing. A friend of mine was his youth pastor for a while, about a year and a half. And he said they went from 700 to about 1700 in one year. And he said now to these preachers, I have never seen God work like this. He said, this is what I'm willing to do. I'm willing to sell my house in Murfreesboro. And move out here to Wichita, Kansas. And continue preaching this meeting. Until God tells us to stop. It was a long pause and many of the pastors were pondering and contemplating what he just said. One of the pastors of the larger churches with a school raised his hand and said, you know, Brother Hudson, he said, that's a very noble thing of you. He said, I'm sure thankful that you'd be willing to do it. But, you know, 
He said, my church has a school and we've got a schedule. We've got a lot of things going on. We can't just come to a screeching halt for God to work in this way. We can't just put everything aside and move our schedule to the side. He said, I think we should just wrap things up like we've planned. And one by one, the pastors raised their hand in agreement. And he said, from that moment forward, the meeting was never the same. Now, you hear me, ladies and gentlemen, I'm in I'm for scheduling and I'm for organization and I'm for planning. But, you know, you studied the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And many times he had a plan and he worked the plan. But many times that plan was interrupted. Many times he sent the disciples on a mission and the disciples would go. And in the middle of that, they would be interrupted. Their plans were interrupted. I want to ask you, are you willing to let God interrupt your plans? One of the best prayers you could pray every morning that would help you in a very viable way is, Lord, I have some plans today, but I surrender my plans to you. I have a schedule today, but I surrender my schedule to you and I invite you to interrupt my schedule any way and at any time you so choose. Something mighty about this passage when this priest was so busy. He just passed by. On the other t- side, maybe as this broken man lay in the dirt and maybe he looked up after regaining consciousness and asking for help. Maybe he he looked up and all he could hear were footsteps going away. Now, pain is racking his body. Maybe he has severe wounds that are going to take days and medical attention to cut to heal. And he he just thinks, why? Why is there? No one to help me. And after he lays there for a little while, he hears footsteps again. Notice verse 32. Luke chapter 10 and verse number 32 tells us that somebody else comes along. And likewise, a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked at the looked on him. The Levite was also a man of the cloth. Now, he was involved in things and tasks and duties that the priest was not necessarily involved in. The Levite was not allowed to do some of the priestly duties, but the Levite was involved in ministering to people. He would meet people at the tabernacle gate. He would meet people at the temple gate. He would bring them with their sacrifices to the burnt offering and the burnt altar and the brazen altar. He would take the animal. He would tie the animal's legs. He would lift the animal and help get the animal up on top of the brazen altar. He or some other Levite would come and kill that animal, let the blood flow. They would collect the blood. They would take care of the entrails. They would, after a while, after it had been burned for a while, they would they would dispose of uh, of the certain parts and they would offer the certain parts. They would divide up certain parts so that the priest's families and the Levite's families would be fed. They would offer their offering to the Lord of the wave and the heave and the thank and the, and the peace offering. They would offer these before the Lord. Every morning and every evening there was to be a burnt offering that was offered before the Lord. And the sin offering was to be offered on a regular basis. So the Levite was very busy. He too, no doubt, had a schedule. He too, no doubt, had some things to go in his life. And the Scripture says he came, notice what it says, verse Verse 32, he came and looked on him. So the difference between the man in verse 31, the priest and the Levite in verse 32 is that the Levite at least took time to come and look. Maybe this man who's broken is lying down in the dirt and he looks out 
Maybe his heart starts to race. That maybe there's hope. Maybe in his mind his children are flashing before him. Maybe his wife is flashing before him. Maybe he's thinking about his loved ones and there's no way for him to communicate. Is there someone that will help me? Is there someone that will tell my family where I'm at? Is there someone that will at least go get help for me? Is there some compassion left in this world? Is there some bit of kindness left? Is there a drop of empathy and a drop of sympathy somewhere in this world? Is there a little bit left for me? And the Levite came and looked on him. Maybe he came. Maybe he even stooped down. He noticed the wounds. He noticed that they were deep. He noticed that there was a loss of blood. He noticed that this man was stripped and wounded and abandoned and left half dead. But did he help? Look at verse 32 to discover. It says, and he passed by on the other side. He looked and then he said, oh, no, no, I can't be bothered with this. I want you to notice number three, a bothered man. And a bothered in two senses. He was bothered by his conscience enough to come and look. But not bothered enough to do anything further. He was bothered enough to notice. He was bothered enough to observe. He was bothered enough in his conscience to do more than the priest had done. But he was not going to be bothered with this right now. And I'm afraid that's where a good many Christians are. We're so busy. We're so troubled about many things that we fail to see the broken people around us. We fail to see the hurting souls around us. We fail to see the children around us that are rife with with trouble and sin and abandoned by the devil and deceived by the thief. Oh, we fail to see it. Or if we fail, we, we at least see it and we at least notice it. We fail to go any further. The Bible says in First John chapter three, beloved, let us not love in word and deed or in, in tongue, word and tongue, but in deed and in truth. In other words, love is no good if it doesn't go further than just words. Love is no good if it doesn't go further than just tongue. Love has to go all the way. And, and you know, I think sometimes we give lip service to love, but we don't give life service to love. And oh, how we need a revival in our hearts of true, genuine love that will do more, at least give a gospel track, but will do more than give a gospel track. Maybe there's someone that needs prayer. Maybe there's someone that needs just a, a, a kind word. Maybe there's someone that needs a ride. Maybe there's someone that needs a dollar. You say, oh, no, preacher, I'm a good steward of my money and I won't give a dollar to the homeless. Well, you can ask me later why if you want to. But I have a completely different view of homeless people than I used to. I have one very dear to me that was homeless for a while because his life was marred and scarred and his thinking was all confused. So I don't look at homeless people like I used to. You say, well, they might spend it on drugs and alcohol. Yes, they might. But they might not. They might just need a burger. They might need a shower. And instead of us looking down our haughty Christian noses at them, it might be good for us to think and imagine what it would be like to spend a night in the city all open and completely vulnerable to every thief that abounds. And maybe instead of sticking up our nose, we should shed a tear for those that are far less fortunate than us. The scripture says here in Luke chapter 10. That he passed by. On the other side, but wait. Jesus doesn't leave us there. Look at verse 33. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. I wonder if this Samaritan was riding his donkey. We know he had one. 
I wonder if as he was riding his donkey, he came along and he saw, too, that there were fragments of clothing and that there were torn garments and that there was a trail of blood and that the whole pathway was showed signs of trouble. And maybe he began to look around for someone that was hurting. Where did this blood go? Where did this blood come from? What caused this? Maybe his heightened senses of security were up. Maybe he began to look around. Maybe he was a little troubled. Maybe he was bothered by what he saw. He got off his donkey if he was riding. And the Bible says he came where he was. Do you know how quickly it describes him coming right where he was? It doesn't say he looked. It doesn't say, like verse number 32, that he came and looked on him. It says he came where he was. Now, if you have any sense tonight and you have any thankfulness and gratitude tonight, and you're saved and on your way to heaven tonight instead of on your way to hell. It's because somebody somewhere sometime came where you were. You know, I had somebody come where I was. It was a mom and a dad. But, you know, long before my mom and dad came where I was and long before a preacher came where I was and long before a Sunday school came where I was, there was an old Pentecostal preacher. They got a burden in Hibbing, North Carolina, Hibbing, Minnesota for Pengilly, Minnesota, which was about 30 minutes down the way. There was religion in that town of Pengilly, but no salvation. There was a liberal United Methodist church that hadn't preached the gospel for decades. My dad had gone there from the time he was born to the time he was 16. My grandpa was the treasurer, but no one had ever preached the gospel. No one had ever told them about hell. No one had ever pointed them in the eyes and said that they're wrong with God. And all of a sudden, this hibbing preacher got a burden for Pengilly. He got a man that was a missionary on his way to France or Japan somewhere overseas. And he got him. He got a tent set up and he came where they were. He came and got a musician group, music group, and they began to sing and play. And my grandpa saw a flyer in a little country store, and he came home, brought the whole family to that tent meeting. You know, they went every night. Do you know they were late the first night and embarrassed as a result? But they went every night and they didn't get saved during that tent meeting. But the gospel hounds had been unleashed and the Holy Spirit had begun to do his work later indirectly as a result of the camp that my uncle attended. My uncle would get saved. Then my dad would get saved. You know why? Because shortly after that tent meeting in 1950, there were some students from Northwestern University, from down Northwestern College down in North, uh, North Minneapolis, and they would come up and they held a vacation Bible school in this liberal United Methodist Church. How that arrangement ever happened, I don't know, but I'm sure glad it did. And then they came back every single weekend, all through the weeks of winter and fall, all through the weeks of fall and winter, all the way into February of 1951. February of 1951, my dad finally understood the gospel and realized he better be making a decision or it might be too late and he got saved. You know what happened right after he got saved? The, the liberals and the unbelievers in the church, they shut it down. They said, who are these people coming in here telling us we're sinners? Who are these people telling us we're on our way to hell? And they got mad and they shut it down. My dad got saved just before it was shut down. You know what I'm thankful for? I'm thankful for the people that put up a sign announcing a tent meeting. I'm thankful for the people that went out of their way to show compassion. And that came through wintry weather all the way through the fall and through the winter up into uh, up into uh, Minnesota in the northern part of Minnesota. I'm sure thankful for that. Somebody came where we were. And if they hadn't, my dad and my grandpa and my uncle and my grandma might have gone the same way of alcoholism and drunkenness that everybody else in the family had chosen. Verse number 30, 33, it says, He saw him. 
He was, he came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. Is there anybody here as a Christian that would shed a tear today? We've become so acrimonious in our society and our culture. We've become so haughty. We've become so dogmatic and hateful in our society, even as Christians. We've become so arrogant that we don't have time to shed a tear over those around us that are lost and perishing and undone. Is there anybody here that will shed a tear over the millions of children in America that don't have the gospel? Is there anybody that will shed a tear by those ravaged by over those ravaged by drugs? Is there anybody here that will shed a tear over those ravaged by religion and, and wrong relationships? Is there anybody that will shed a tear? Would you notice what the scripture says? It says when he saw him, he had compassion on him. I imagine this was much like Jeremiah when in Lamentations chapter three, he said, mine eye affecteth mine heart. He had compassion. He saw people for who they really are. You know, if you'll look past the makeup and you'll look past the 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 colors and you'll look past the 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 ethnic uh, the ethnic the ethnicity or you'll look past the social stratus, rich or poor, you might just see an eternal soul. If you look into their eyes deeply, you might just see someone who is longing for someone to point them to the gospel, but they have no man. If you look a little closer, you might see someone that actually is in need and was crying out in need, but they have no one to point them to salvation. You might just see someone like the Ethiopian eunuch who, who says uh, who, who says that he needs someone to point him the way. Might see someone like Cornelius. You might see someone like Paul, who was a religious zealot, but who was lost in his sin. If you look a little closer, you might see the eternal verse number 34. It says he went to him. He didn't just come where he was. He didn't just see him. He didn't just have compassion on him. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine. That means he took his time, he took his talents, and he took his treasure and he invested it. Now I want to ask you a question. Which takes a greater risk? Faith or love? Any deep theologian and scholar here tonight that knows the answer, I'd sure like to know. Which takes a greater risk, faith or love? I like what someone else said, that you never really know what love is until you have to love someone that hates you in return. And oh, how we need a good revival of love and kindness and real compassion. It says he went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, set him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Watch me now. Listen carefully. I'm not saying being foolish, but watch. He wasn't looking for plastic gloves to sanitize himself so that he would not infect himself. And if we're not careful, we'll let society press us into a mold. Hear me. You cannot remove the human smile and the human touch from a society and expect it to be any kind of healthy. It's impossible. And God has given us to this world to be a human touch and a human smile. And a little show of kindness and a little bit of compassion and maybe even a tear every once in a while. John R. Rice said, I used to preach and cry, cry my way through my sermons. And, and it was so embarrassing. He said, I began to pray, oh, God, please take away my tears. I'm so sorry and embarrassed about my tears. He said, I can't seem to preach without tears flowing. He said, oh, God, would you take away my tears? And he said, they went away. And he said, the power went away and the effectiveness went away. And the compassion went away. 
And he said, I finally realized what the cause of this powerlessness was. And he said, I got along with God and said, God, I'll never pray it again. Please don't take away my tears. Please give me back my tears. And he said, when my tears begin to flow and my heart begin to break, then people begin to get saved. And I wonder, what, what's it going to take for us to have our tears flow? Do we need another national tragedy? What, what is it going to take for us to have our tears flow and for us to be obedient Christians? It says he took care of him. Verse number 35. And on the morrow when he departed, he took out two pence. That's two days wages. Took out two pence and gave them to the host and said unto him, take care of him and whatsoever thou spendest more. When I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among thieves? And he that is the lawyer said he that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, go and do thou likewise. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying we need compassion. When Jesus looked on the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep, having no shepherd. When Jesus stood in John chapter number 12 or John chapter 11, and he saw the people weeping around Lazarus's tomb and Mary weeping and Martha weeping, Jesus wept. The Bible says in the book of Second uh, Kings chapter 20 that b- because Hezekiah showed tears that God saw his tears. It says that in Esther chapter number eight and verse number three, that Mordecai Mordecai wept tears and Esther wept tears before the king. The scripture tells us in the book of Psalm chapter six and verse six, I'm weary with my groaning all the night. I make my bed to swim. I water my couch with my tears. The scripture says in Psalm 39 and verse 12, hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear unto my cry. Hold not thy peace at my tears, for I am a stranger with thee. It says in Psalm 42 and verse 3, my tears have been my meat day and night while they continually say unto me, where is thy God? Listen to Psalm 56 and verse 8. It says, thou tellest my wanderings, put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? Now, if God notes our tears enough to put them in a bottle and write them down in a book, don't you think we ought to shed tears for those that are lost? Don't you think that we ought to shed tears for those that are hurting and hungering and longing for some solution of the mess that the devil has made in their lives? Are there no tears? Are there no tears? The Bible says in the book of Psalm 126 and verse number five, they that sow in tears shall reap in joy. The Bible says in the book of Ecclesiastes says that there's a time for sorrow and a time for weeping. Jeremiah was called the weeping prophet. And the scripture speaks about the tears of those that were shed in the New Testament. It says in Luke chapter seven, there was a, a harlot that stood behind Jesus and at his feet weeping and began washing his feet with their tears. Jesus is touched by our tears and Jesus is touched when our tears flow for others, for someone other than ourselves. Is there, are there any tears? Have we no sympathy? Have we no compassion? Is there no morsel of goodness in our heart? Have we no desire to reach the lost around us and to weep over not just their immediate plight, but their eternal plight? Have we no tears? Have we lost our sense? Have we lost our sense of realness as a Christian? Realizing that somebody was willing to weep for us, but we're not willing to weep for them. Oh, God. Oh, God, give us tears again. Oh, God, give us brokenness again. Give us a willingness to go the extra mile again. Oh, God, help us again. Forgive us for our hard hearts and forgive us for our hard souls and forgive us for our hardness against others. We're so we, we, we're glad to use the emotion of anger. We're glad to use the emotion of passion. We're glad to use the emotion of anxiety and worry. But when it comes to tears, oh no, 
Oh, no. I remember going up the times of coming to church and the preacher would preach and sometimes tears would flow down his face and people would come to the altar in tears. And, and we've, we've lost that. By the way, the tears aren't supposed to stop at the altar. They're supposed to start and continue when we go out to a lost and dying world and see them for who they really are. Two stories and I'm through. I remember at the beginning of this year in January, I was flying from a meeting in Brown City, Michigan to Kenmare, North Dakota. I was sitting in the airport in Detroit and I was just flipping through the reels on my phone. And all of a sudden I came across a reel of the psychologist from Canada. What's his name? Yeah, Jordan Peterson. Jordan Peterson, as I as I noted, he was crying. Tears were coming down his face. Now, I don't believe Jordan Peterson is saved. I think he's close. I think he's searching. I'm praying that he'll get saved. But I don't think personally that he's made that choice, as far as I know, to come to Jesus Christ. But he was talking about hell. And as he was talking about hell, Pastor Bishop, tears were coursing down his cheeks and he was saying something like this. The reason that believers would try to help unbelievers come to salvation is because they don't want someone to burn. And he was weeping. And I saw this reel and I wept. I said, dear God. Has this preacher become so cold and hard that an unsaved thinking psychologist who is seeking God has more sense and understanding and compassion about lost men than me? Where? Oh, where are our tears? It is the crying shame of the church that there are none. Where are our tears? At the beginning of this year, I had two meetings cancel. And that's a bit of a crunch when you, you've just come off of, a, of a, a winter break, at least for an evangelist. And I was a little perturbed, at least by that second meeting canceling. I didn't understand what the Lord was doing, but the Lord was doing something. If those two meetings had not canceled, I would not have been able to go to Rhode Island to be at the funeral of one of my dear friends in the ministry, Pastor Chris Baker. He'd been at that church for over 35 years, some as an assistant and some as a pastor. And he's one of the kindest and most compassionate men I ever knew. At the viewing, there were people lined up all the way around the back of the auditorium, all the way out into the parking lot for three or four hours. At the funeral, it lasted two or three hours. After the funeral, some of the friends and church folk came back to the church and they moved all the pews inside and the church chairs aside and they set up tables and they had a meal for the friends and the family. And one testimony after another showed his compassion. You know why those two meetings canceled? So this preacher could get revived. One testimony came out of a man who said, in, in this, he said about 30 years ago, he said, I was married, but I had another love in my life. And the name was cocaine. He said, it caused me to be thrown in jail. He said, three times Chris and Nancy came to visit me and I wouldn't see them. He said, when I got out of jail and I got out of prison, I was walking along the side of the road and they picked me up and they got me in their car. He said, you know, the first thing they asked me. We have a Christian radio station on. Is that offensive to you? Because if it is, we, we don't want to be unnecessarily offensive. And he said, I was struck by their thoughtfulness and kindness. 
He said, Chris said to me now, now we've got a building project and our auditorium isn't finished. And he said, I know you have construction background. He said, what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to just take charge of the whole project. (laughs) He said, my men will answer to you. He said, you decide what needs to be done. We'll work together on the decisions. And he said, my men will work for you. Is that satisfactory? He said, well, he said, I've got to do some community service anyway. He said, I might as well. He said, as soon as I get done, I'll get away from these Christian folks. He said, you would not believe that the Christian men of that church showed me as much respect as they showed pastor. And he said, I was struck by their kindness and their love. Do you know who that man was? Pastor Chris Baker's brother-in-law. And through the compassion of Pastor Baker, there was his wife, this man's wife, and they were happily married after such traumatic and awful brokenness in their home. There was another man that stood and testified and said, I think that Pastor Baker was the kind of guy you could spit in his face and he'd give you the shirt off his back. Another man preached. I preached the Sunday after the funeral on Sunday morning. Do you know who preached on Sunday night? A young man in his 20s who two years prior, Pastor Baker had found homeless, a drug addict and a thief, a car thief. But through his love and compassion and coming where he was and tears, that young man got saved and now was called to the ministry and was preaching. You see, love and compassion win the day. And love and compassion are most of the time evidenced. By a broken heart. Would you bow with me in prayer? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. I thank you for your kind attention tonight. I wonder with your heads bowed and eyes closed. If you'd say brother Smith. I'm saved. But as you've been preaching tonight. God's Holy Spirit. Has smote my heart. And I ask myself. Where are the tears? Would you pray for me that I would let the Lord Jesus Christ's love and compassion shine through me and break my heart once again for those that are broken around me? If that's you, would you slip up your hand? God bless you. God bless you. I want to ask two more questions. How many tonight would say, Brother Smith, I know that I'm saved. There are sure things I don't know, but there's one thing I sure do know, and that's that I'm saved. And on my way to heaven... If I died tonight, I know that I'd go to heaven. I've been born again. Now, if you don't know that and you've never been saved, it won't help you or me to raise your hand. But as a testimony to the Lord, if you've been born again and trusted Christ as your Savior, and you can say that with all assurance you're saved, would you slip your hand up high? Yes, I know that I'm saved and on my way to heaven. If I died tonight, I know that I'd go to heaven. God bless you and put your hands down. Is there anybody here this evening that would say, Brother Smith? I don't know. I wish I knew, but I feel like that broken man, vulnerable, abandoned, wounded, and left for dead. Would you pray for me? I'd sure like to get saved tonight. If that's you with heads bowed and eyes closed, would you just slip up your hand? Is there anybody here like that? Preacher, pray for me. I don't know that I'm saved, but I shine closed. Would you just slip up your hand? Is there anybody here like that? Preacher, pray for me. I don't know that I'm saved, but I sure would like to know. Would you pray for me? Anyone at all? Slip up your hand. Put it right back down. All right, let's stand with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. I'm not going to have any music tonight. I think that we just need to meet with the Lord. As I pray, you come.
Move us away from our apathy and our coldness and our indifference. And break us for those around us that are so broken and ravaged by sin. We pray it in Jesus' name. The altar is open. If you need to come, you come.